This is episode number 223, Plant-Based Nutrition for Children and Teens with Brenda Davis, RD, and Reshma Shah, MD. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. In terms of diet, I think the thing that has probably been most studied is just the role of dairy. And in some studies, dairy has been linked to an increased risk of atopic diseases such as eczema, asthma, and allergies, as well as ear infections. We talk extensively about this in the book. There certainly is not a need for dairy in the diet for kids to grow and be healthy. And in fact, dairy can have some adverse health outcomes for children as well. I hope everybody is doing fantastic this fine November day and that you guys are feeling good. Something that I've started working on as of September is a year-long program to getting my health coaching certification. It's a national board certified position and I'm doing it through Vanderbilt University. So it's been really fun going back and revisiting some of the topics that I love and also learning how to coach. There's a very specific and researched way on how to be a health coach. But the thing that we've been learning lately is about psychology, especially positive psychology, my favorite subject. And we are learning all about gratitude practices. And we've talked about gratitude practices on this show, and it far exceeds just writing stuff down in a gratitude journal. So if you're interested, this week's newsletter is going to be all about the things I've learned about gratitude practices. And you can sign up for that at sanyaluni.com slash newsletter. I love sharing exclusive content in my newsletter that you can't get anywhere else every single week. So sanyaluni.com slash newsletter, and we'll see you there. Today's episode is pretty awesome. It's about the ultimate resource for plant-based nutrition for children and teens, a new book called Nourish, the definitive plant-based nutrition guide for families. It's by Brenda Davis and Reshma Shah. And Brenda Davis is one of the top authorities and dietitians in plant-based nutrition. She's the author of 11 books, including the incredibly comprehensive book, Becoming Vegan. And as I mentioned, the co-author of the new book, Nourish. And Brenda is one of the world's leading plant-based dietitians and an expert in reducing the world's type 2 diabetes problems with plant-based diets. She teaches lifestyle medicine courses all over the world, has been flown by the Prince of Saudi Arabia to Saudi Arabia to consult on diet. She's a highly sought-after speaker for nutrition and medicine conferences. She's presented in 20-plus countries on five continents. She has already been on the podcast twice, which I'll link in the show notes. And one of the episodes, our most recent one before this one, was about plant-based for athletes. And now her co-author, Reshma Shah, MD, medical doctor, joins us for today's episode. Reshma Shah is a board-certified pediatrician and an affiliate clinical instructor at Stanford University School of Medicine. She received her undergraduate and graduate degrees from John Hopkins University and her medical degree from Drexel University College of Medicine. She has additional training and certification in plant-based nutrition and cooking. Nourish, their book, is an evidence-based practical resource that explores the many benefits of plant-based diets and provides parents with the tools they need to provide excellent and balanced nutrition for families. And this book has been awesome. It came out at just the right time for me as I was introducing solids to my baby. The book is just coming out now. And Brenda is a really great friend of mine. So I was very excited when I heard that she was writing this book with Dr. Shaw. 
Whether you want to go fully plant-based with your kids or just help them eat healthier, this podcast episode is for you. And many people ask me already as I feed my baby beans and legumes and greens and all kinds of healthy foods. They ask me, how am I getting them to eat that already? And many people tell me they can't get their kids to eat healthy. And this book has so much information in it. Parents will learn how a diet centered around plants can optimize health, prevent chronic disease, care for our planet, and be an act of radical compassion. It goes through the nutrition specifics for all the stages of childhood, from pregnancy and breastfeeding all the way through adolescence. So there is something in here for everybody to try and just get your kids to eat healthy. And there's tips, strategies, and mouthwatering recipes to bring all this information to the dinner table as families explore the wonderful world of plant-based eating, my favorite. In this episode, we talked about nutritional requirements for infants, if infants can actually eat a plant-based diet, decoding breast milk nutrition facts, how to get your kids to eat healthier, and deficiencies to watch out for and how to supplement for them. And speaking of deficiencies, Inside Tracker is an awesome company that uses blood work to assess biomarkers, blood analysis, athletic performance, and nutrition software to optimize fitness and longevity. They are our podcast sponsor and a company that I use, gosh, I don't even know how long, maybe five years I've been using this company to check my biomarkers, things like hormones and mineral profiles, looking at my training and seeing how I can use nutrition and lifestyle to improve that. They measure over 30 biomarkers and you can select what your goal is. It could be health. It could be longevity. It could be better endurance. It could be better sleep. And they use these biomarkers to tell you more about yourself. And the best way to learn about your body is to open up the hood, have a look, and then try to make lifestyle changes in order to get better. And right now, Inside Tracker is offering an amazing gift, $200 off the ultimate plan. And they only offer this once per year. And just use the code GIFT from Sonia Looney. That's all one word, GIFT from Sonia Looney at InsideTracker.com to get $200 off the ultimate plan. Highly, highly recommend it. They even do an inner age test. And hint, my inner age is 24. Inside Tracker can also be a really great thing to use if you're thinking about changing your diet or if you have changed your diet to a plant-based diet because a lot of times people have doubts. Anytime anything happens, they think, uh-oh, it might be my diet. And Inside Tracker is such a great way to verify that you probably are the healthiest you've ever been. And if you're not, what you can do to get there. So let's get into this week's awesome episode with Brenda Davis and Dr. Shaw. Welcome to the show, you two. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm so excited. Brenda's been on the show many times, but Dr. Reshma, this is the first time you've been on the show. Yeah, it's so lovely to meet you. Yeah, and it was so perfect because, as everybody listening knows, I had a baby recently, and I'm always asking Brenda all these nutritional questions, and then she's like, it just so happens that we have a book coming out all about these things. So how did you guys meet? Brenda, why don't you tell me? Well, it's a really funny story because we met when we were both heading to a plantrician conference in L.A. And uh, we ended up on the same airplane because I was visiting a friend in San Francisco and Reshma's from San Francisco. And and uh, she ended up sitting beside me on the plane and we just started talking and found out we were going to the same conference. And I'll let Reshma tell the rest of it, Reshma. Yeah, I actually, I was just attending the conference and Brenda was one of the presenters. And of course, Brenda's such a well-known figure in the plant-based community. So I knew exactly who she was and 
I couldn't believe my luck that I was sitting right next to her on the plane. And we ended up striking up a conversation and I think the flight time just flew by. We couldn't believe we had landed and we were essentially talking the whole way there. And over the course of the next year, I think we just sort of stayed in touch and I was blown away just by my fortune of having met her. And then we met again the following year at the same conference and got to know one another a little bit better. And, you know, I was just asking Brenda some professional advice of how she accomplished so much. I mean, she's she's been my go-to resource for so long. And, you know, I sort of mentioned that I would I wouldn't even know where to begin with all the work that she has done. And she said that we could write a book together. And that's kind of how it happened. And so as soon as I got home from the flight, even in the airport, I started sort of drafting up what that book could look like. And it's been a really wonderful professional collaboration. And on a personal level, I just have been so thrilled to get to know Brenda. And, you know, she's one of my close friends now. And I have to say that I am just absolutely constantly blown away by uh, Reshma's brilliance and her skill set, which (laughs) far supersedes mine. And so I'm grateful all the time. It's been a really wonderful collaboration. Yeah. Awesome. So Dr. Reshma, like, how did you get into plant-based? Like, did you start that way or did it eventually like come into your practice and lifestyle? It's actually kind of a full circle story. I grew up in a vegetarian household. So long before people were calling it plant-based, I mean, that's how my family ate growing up. We ate a lot of traditional Indian foods. So lentils and rice and whole grains and lots and lots of vegetables, very vegetable focused cuisine. And I grew up in America. And so the standard American diet definitely crept into my regular eating. And especially when I was in medical school and residency training, you know, we were really busy. I had kids at the end of my residency. And so it was all about the quickest, fastest, easiest way of getting food on the table. So for a long time, I was essentially plant-based, vegetarian household, and then entirely not plant-based from college and med school and residency training. And then when I started having kids of my own, I really started to think more broadly about what would be the healthiest way to feed them. And so just like you're in the position now of having had a baby and thinking about, you know, what's the best way that I can nourish this child, I started becoming much more interested in nutrition. And I wasn't really looking to be vegan or plant-based. I was just looking and exploring like what are the healthiest patterns of eating. And over and over again, the evidence pointed to a plant-centered diet as the foundation for promoting health. And so that's I started making some changes at home. And I think food and nutrition is such a personal thing that when you start making these changes in your own family, in your own life, it's really hard to keep it out of your professional life. And so the way that I spoke to families about food, about nutrition, started to gradually change. And then I sort of just dove right in, started going to more of these conferences, learning more about plant-based cooking. And now I'm sort of back full circle. I think my parents are like, finally, you've come back (laughs) to our side because I had left for so long. So it's been sort of a a gradual process. And, you know, the more that I've learned, I've really tried to find ways to share that with patients and colleagues in my clinical practice as well. And I think it's interesting that Many people go to their pediatrician for nutritional advice on their kids. I haven't looked into what the nutritional training looks like for pediatricians, but what was that like for you? And do you think that pediatricians should have more nutritional training before making recommendations? 
I think it can vary broadly. And I will tell you that when I trained a long, long time ago, the nutrition education was very minimal, if anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And it mostly involved like the most nutritional interventions that I did was like feeding really premature babies through IV tubing and just, you know, how much fat, how much carbs, how much amino acids and all those things, but definitely not advising patients about the healthiest and most optimal way of eating. So I think we kind of make it up as we go along based on our own personal experiences. So I think Mm -hmm. the nutrition education has been very lacking. The good news is that I think it's changing. There is a much greater emphasis on nutrition. I think just from working with the residents and students, they are very interested in this information. And there are all sorts of programs, like even at Stanford, they piloted a culinary education program where they had students could enroll in an elective and they spent time in the teaching kitchen and there was a curriculum and I was just volunteer faculty. I didn't coordinate the program, but there was a waiting list for the program because I think that students are really interested. And I have the opportunity and the fortune of working with the residents at Stanford and they're very keen to learn about this stuff. So I think we have a long ways to go, but the interest is definitely there. And I think in terms of relying on your specific pediatrician for nutrition information, it's going to be very variable. I think you'll find some pediatricians that are very well informed and interested in having the conversations. And then you have some pediatricians that are going to focus on, you know, three glasses of milk and making sure you get enough protein. And that's kind of where the conversation ends, which we know is not a good place for the conversation to even begin. Yeah. So Brenda, can you talk about the nutritional needs of infants and as they move into toddlerhood with solid foods? Because I think there's a lot of questions about like, well, how much fat, how much protein? When should you stop breastfeeding? The AAP says breastfeed till one year. But then I read like you're supposed to give cow's milk, which makes no sense to me because now you're giving cow breast milk instead of your own breast milk. So can you talk about that? Well, that's a lot of questions in one little (laughs) bundle. So let's start with appropriate milk. So nutritional needs of babies are, they have greater needs per kilogram of body weight or per pound of body weight than do adults. So they're, sometimes the numbers look huge. It's interesting, the recommended dietary allowance for iron is actually higher in infancy than it is for an adult male. So some of the requirements are a little stunning, but generally our needs slowly increase as our bodies get bigger, but, you know, per pound of body weight, they're a little more concentrated. But let's start with the milks. And so what's an appropriate milk for an infant? And of course, everybody knows every species, every mammal species produces a milk that really is a very, very carefully designed to allow for optimal growth and development of their offspring. And that May it's just common sense. And so obviously, humans are going to do better on human milk than on cow's milk or dog milk or moose milk or whatever other mammal milk you might think of. That um, moose milk so, is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually got twice as much calcium per cup as cow's milk. <laughs> Dang, people should switch to moose milk. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting, you know, when you think about it, it's just so obvious that our milk is suited to our infants as cow's milk is to a calf. So the benefits of feeding a baby breast milk as opposed to any other kind of milk, human breast milk, is that that breast milk, it actually changes as the baby, you know, from birth, as the baby gets older, it adjusts to what the baby would require. 
it adjusts, you know, throughout the day. It, it provides the baby with these antibodies and cytokines and, you know, just all of these components that are really protective. And we know that babies who are breastfed enjoy better health. They actually do better cognitively if they've been breastfed for a long time. They, they do better in terms of respiratory infections and, and their gut flora is healthier and, and they're just protected long term. And so breastfeeding is obviously the number one choice. And if you can't breastfeed, then, you know, you end up having to choose a commercial infant formula, which are adequate, but they don't provide what breast milk provides. Now, in terms of how long should we be breastfeeding for? Well, even the AAP says um, that, you know, ideally you want to be breastfeeding for at least a year, but beyond a year is, is even better. And most experts recognize that any length of time you can feed beyond a year is a gift to your child. I mean, you, it continues to provide that unique mix of not just nutrients, but those protective components for however long you feed. And some people say, well, it just seems so weird to be feeding a child that's two or three or, you know, more years old. And in fact, Natural human weaning is two to four years. That's normal for human offspring is to breastfeed for two to four years. And, you know, I breastfed my children, my daughter for two and a half and my son for about three years and a month or something like that. And what I noticed with my son, which my daughter, unfortunately, we had to stop breastfeeding just because I was pregnant and my nipples were so sore I could hardly stand it when she would latch on. So I had to explain to her that that it it really hurt, and she understood. And we had this discussion, and and so we stopped breastfeeding. But with my son, we didn't have to do that. And I can't remember the actual time when he weaned, but he went from breastfeeding four times a day to three to two to one, and then it just stopped. And neither one of us even kind of noticed that it stopped. And to me, that's that's ideal. If you can do that, it. Some people call there's different types of baby led weaning, but that's baby led weaning with nursing. And and I think that that's really wonderful. So if for any reason, I mean, it's probably half of mothers that breastfeed stop by six months and probably only about a third are breastfeeding at a year, which is really unfortunate. But if you stop prior to six months, then you must use a formula until the baby's a year of age. If you stop after a year, then you can switch to other types of milk. But during that first year, it needs to be the breast milk or formula. Hmm. And then as the baby starts eating solid foods, there's a, a lot of different foods that babies can eat and will eat. But are there certain foods that are recommended? I know you mentioned iron is really important, especially as the babies are really young. Like, What's a good way to start feeding your baby solids? So before even mentioning that, it's important for parents to realize that breast milk is still the most important food during that entire first year. So from six to eight months of age, when you've started solids, 80% of the baby's calories are still coming from breast milk. From about nine to 12 months, it reduces to 50% or so. And then after that, it's about after a year, it might be about a third of the calories. So the, the Breast milk is still the most important food. However, somewhere between about four to six months of age for most breastfed babies, 
their iron stores start to disappear. And in fact, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that that babies from four to six months of age that are being breastfed, this doesn't apply to formula-fed babies because formula-fed babies generally are provided with iron-fortified formula, and that's what's recommended. So it's not an issue for them. But for, for breastfed babies, often it's recommended that they receive a milligram per kilogram of iron during that four to six month period. And, and then that can stop once they consume enough iron, they meet the RDA with solid foods alone, then you would no longer have to supplement them. So this isn't done by that many parents. I don't know, Reshma, if you, if you routinely do that in your practice with babies. Yeah, so I think that it, for breastfed babies, it is a good idea to start supplementing with iron. And then once they start eating those iron-rich foods, at six months, you can stop. I think a lot of times people do just sort of wait it out those couple of months. So it's variable. I think certainly if there was a history of anemia in mom or there were any nutritional concerns, it would be good to start supplementing with iron. The other situation is oftentimes if babies are born prematurely, it's you, you would want to start iron supplementation as well. And in that case, Reshma, it starts much earlier. If the baby's premature, because the iron stores are laid down at the end of pregnancy, they're born with far fewer iron stores than a full-term baby, correct? Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, generally when babies are born prematurely, those levels will be checked. So you'll kind of know how much, to what degree of supplementation you may need. So then getting back to your question, Sonia, the first foods that you're going to want to provide a baby at six months of age is when you would start providing solids or thereabouts. It might be a couple of weeks before or after, depending on, on the infant. But your first foods would be something that is an iron-rich food. And you can see some guidelines now suggesting, you know, red meat is the first food. And it just I just cringe when I read that. And if you look in our book, we actually talk about the amount of iron in different foods. And it's so interesting. You get enough iron, that's, you know, 11 milligrams that's recommended in about six tablespoons of iron fortified infant cereal. And I think it's like 12 or 13 teaspoons of tofu and about 22 or 27 or something in lentils. It's 50 something, I think, in chicken and 70 some tablespoons of beef that would be required of baby beef that would be required to get in that amount of iron. So to me, to get 11 milligrams of iron, you understand the RDA for an adult man is eight milligrams. It's 18 for a woman because of what we lose in our, you know, periods every month when we're premenopausal or yeah, premenopausal, but for babies, 11 milligrams, that's a lot of food to have to eat for a little baby. It's really tough to achieve that without some sort of iron fortified infant cereal. And if you're not willing to use that, which some people don't want to use it because they think it's a processed food or whatever, then you need to be providing uh, iron drops. You just do. The thing is with iron is if a baby becomes iron deficient, it can affect their cognitive ability permanently. So you just don't want to mess with it. And, and so you do need to, I mean, I just highly recommend feeding an iron fortified infant cereal. And then after that, you know, we used to back 20, 30, 40 years ago, we used to suggest this very specific order of introduction of foods. You know, it would be the, the pablum, then the vegetables, then the fruits. And, and, you know, so it would be grains, vegetables, fruits, and then the high protein foods. 
But in those days, we started solids earlier. And now that we wait till a baby's about six months of age, we're not so concerned about order of introduction. And the studies don't really pan out that if you feed fruit before vegetables, it'll be, you know, a bad thing. However, all that having been said, I still think it, it makes sense because vegetables are more nutrient dense to go to vegetables, you know, next. And so you start out, you want the cereal, uh, where cereals are concerned. You, we used to say rice cereal to be the first food for a baby because rice tends to not be very allergenic. Now we say avoid rice cereal for babies because we found studies that show that they're quite high in arsenic. And that's not something you want your baby to have. It's a heavy metal that, you know, has toxic effects. So you would want to be choosing, um, you know, a single grain and cereal to start with, like barley or oat or something like that. And then from there, you go on to the vegetables and the fruits and other grains. And, and you also, in fairly short order, want to be adding in the legume group. So, you know, all the different kinds of beans and lentils and split peas and tofu and all of those things can be added shortly thereafter. That's funny. I think people think, oh, my baby's not going to like legumes because maybe they have a bias against legumes. But I feed Bradley, my baby, just like I just cook up some red lentils and he he loves it. And my mom still just can't believe that he likes lentils like babies like that stuff. And you, yeah. start, and you start thinking about like what they're eating. Like he had sort of slightly blended up tofu and carrots this morning and they eat so healthy. They're not eating sugars and salts and all these things. And it inspires me to eat healthier when I see what he's eating. That's so crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, Dr. Shaw, I want to talk about things like baby ear infections and asthma and some of these chronic infections and things that happen in childhood. How much of that is related to the diet? Yeah, so I think diet can definitely play a role in those things. And obviously, our exposures and other environmental factors can also play a role. When I think about the risk of asthma and ear infections and atopic diseases in general, family history definitely plays a big role. You know, if there's a smoker in the home and certainly nowadays everyone's kind of home because of COVID, but exposures in daycare and things like that can cause those upper respiratory infections, which can then lead to ear infections. But in terms of diet, I think the thing that has probably been most studied is just the role of dairy and in some studies, dairy has been linked to an increased risk of atopic diseases such as eczema, asthma, and allergies, as well as ear infections. So, you know, we talk extensively about this in the book. There certainly is not a need for dairy in the diet for kids to grow and be healthy. And in fact, dairy can have some adverse health outcomes for children as well. Mm. And then just eating a generally healthy diet. You know, I think that if we're eating lots of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes, all the things that are in a plant-centered diet they help to keep us healthy, keep our immune systems running well, and in general can promote overall health. So what if someone listening is like, well, I didn't raise my kids eating legumes and vegetables and we're trying to switch them. Maybe they're like seven years old or something. And we're trying to get them to start eating this stuff and they're turning their nose up at it. Like, how do I get my kids to eat more of these healthy foods? Yeah. And I think this is a common thing that I run into when I speak to parents, especially about plant-based nutrition. And one of the things I always remind parents about is that if your child has been eating this way for seven years. It's not reasonable to expect that within a few meals or even within a week or two, that you're going to be able to completely change that. So I think the most important thing is to have some patience. And 
be in it for the long game. So I think a lot of times parents will focus on one specific meal or one specific day of eating, but it's, it's important to remember that you're in it for the long run. And in order to change those habits, you have to sort of gradually bring in change. And one of the best things you can do, especially for kids that are really used to eating, you know, more standard American diet or not very plant-centered is instead of taking things away, it can be really useful to just start by adding things in. So one of the simplest things can be to, you know, serve the meals that you usually do and make sure you include a big salad or some fresh fruit at breakfast. And just as you start to add things in, it'll be easier to crowd out the things that you're trying to remove. So adding things in, have a sense of patience. And for kids, especially ones that are like more selective in their intake, it can require repeated exposure before a child to accept a new flavor or a new food. And so even if your child sort of turns their nose up at broccoli or whatever you might be offering today, that doesn't mean you should give it up or abandon. And there are, we talk about this in the book extensively, but lots of things you can do, getting your kids involved with preparing the meals, creating fun dips, creating fun shapes, and really having an approach that's inviting instead of saying you must eat this, because you also want to sort of maintain a nurturing positive relationship with your child as you're considering exploring these new foods. So I think my top tips would be to have a sense of patience, think about adding things in before you start removing things, and just repeated exposure, getting your kids involved, those sorts of things. Yeah, and I mean, even as adults changing your diet, like you wouldn't just expect somebody to all of a sudden change everything overnight like it would be the same thing where you slowly add in things and maybe maybe you don't like broccoli so you can find another cruciferous vegetable that you like brenda can we talk about meat because we talked about dairy and how dairy could potentially cause some of these infections and we all know that adding in more fruits and vegetables is healthier but what about cutting out meat how is that helpful for kids yeah, well, first of all, meat in the North American diet is the primary source of protein and iron and zinc, and they're all bio, very bioavailable. And so meat is considered to be such a foundational food. And so people get really nervous, and health professionals included get nervous when they hear a parent has completely eliminated meat. And so it can be a challenge for parents when they go to their healthcare providers or they're talking to their families if they say, well, we're not feeding our children meat. So what you need to think about, a couple of things, we can think about the disadvantages of meat, of course, but a couple of things when you're removing meat completely, you want to make sure that those nutrients that are provided by meat are provided by something else. And the something else in the plant-based world is legume or legume-based generally. And so you're wanting to include plenty of beans and lentils and split peas and all of those kinds of foods. You can also provide some uh, what we call veggie meats. There's a Canadian company, the, the uh, Very Good Butcher, for example, that, that provides some pretty whole food-based foods that are decent. And so those can be really fun and one of the things that I think is important for kids is, you know, they go to brownies or scouts or they're doing something with friends, they're camping with friends, that sometimes if, if everybody's doing burgers or everybody's roasting a hot dog, that they can have something that looks like meat that where they feel like part of the group, even if it's not. So let's think about the advantages for children of not having meat. Well, number one, we know that processed meat is a group one human carcinogen. 
which means that, I mean, it may not be quite as bad as smoking or asbestos or alcohol, but it's in that same category. It's, it's in that realm. We know enough about the dangers of processed meat that it is considered a group one human carcinogen. And you don't want to expose your child to secondhand smoke. You don't want to feeding your baby uh, alcohol. To me, it makes no sense to think that it's okay. It boggles my mind that in children's hospitals, one of the first things we see is, you know, fast food little outlets that parents can get these junk foods for their kids. So to me, processed meat is on the same level as serious carcinogens. It should not be a part of the diet at all. Red meat is considered a group 2A human carcinogen. So it's a it's what we call a probable carcinogen. And we know, this we know, we compare plant-based proteins with animal-based proteins. There are two big studies that have been done. One that was done out of Harvard with over 130,000 participants. If you replace just 3% of calories, that's 60 calories in a 2,000 calorie diet, with, you know, of animal protein with plant protein, you reduce the risk of death significantly. That's just 3% of calories. You reduce the risk of death by 34%. If you're replacing processed red meat, I think it's 12% for red meat, 19% for eggs, about 8% for dairy and or 6% for dairy and fish and 8% for poultry, something like that. But you significantly reduce risk of death. There was a study in Japan with over 70,000 individuals showing reduced at the same amount, 3% of calories, reducing risk of cancer and heart disease by 40 to 50%. So we know that long-term, we will be protecting our children from these kinds of diseases by choosing plant protein sources over animal protein sources. Animal protein sources come packaged with saturated fat and cholesterol. There's no fiber. There's no phytochemicals. There are very few antioxidants. It comes packaged with a molecule called NU5GC, which is a pro-inflammatory molecule. It comes packaged with, um, with, with carnitine, which gets converted to you know, TMA and eventually TMAO, which is highly atherogenic. It comes packaged if it's processed with endotoxins, uh, gram-negative bacteria that are dead and are decomposing, which is uh, very inflammatory. It's just, you know, one thing after the other after the other. If you cook meat on a barbecue, you produce heterocyclic amines and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons that are carcinogenic. It just goes on and on. On the other hand, if you compare that with legumes, it's all good. These are the highest fiber foods in the diet. They're loaded with iron and zinc and all of these wonderful nutrients. They're extremely low in fat. They're cholesterol-free. They're, you know, just on and on. And if you compare, you know, mortality data for people eating legumes, there was a study that showed that people 70 plus eating just 20 grams of legumes a day, that's like less than two tablespoons, had a 7 to 8% risk reduction in mortality. Everything we know about legumes is favorable. So to me, it's just a no-brainer. It just makes so much more sense to be providing plant-based protein. And by doing so, you leave a softer footprint on the planet. You're not slaughtering billions of animals every year. It's, um, anyway, that's my argument. (laughs) Yeah, like, just, and even if people don't want to go 100%, just like you said, uh, 60 calories out of 2,000 calories, it's like barely anything makes a difference. What about fish? 
So to me, fish is preferable to red meat or poultry in terms of the fat composition. So in meat or poultry, you've got more saturated fat. In red meat, you've got heme iron, which is a pro-oxidant, and all these other things I talked about. In fish, you tend to have more of these long-chain essential fatty acids, EPA and DHA. And so, you know, as a first step for omnivores, switching from red meat and poultry to fish makes sense. However, the one huge concern about, well, the one, there are several huge concerns, but one of the biggest concerns about fish is it is among our most concentrated sources of environmental contaminants, including heavy metals like mercury and arsenic, but also, and cadmium, but also of things like dioxin and PCBs, and these move up the food chain, and large fish especially, they'll eat often close to the same amount of calories as a full-grown woman, for example. And these small little bodies, that amount of mercury can be you know, in one serving of, you know, the higher mercury fish can be really concerning. And so if parents are consuming fish, they want to make sure they're selecting lower mercury fish. And and in my view, one of the biggest concerns about fish is that we have very few fish stocks left in the oceans. And, and, you know, there are some estimates that they will be pretty much wiped out by 2050. And for those of us that are looking beyond ourselves, we need to consider that there are better ways, there are more ethical ways to be getting our calories than from fish. And so so fish being less problematic, but still, if you replace fish with plant protein sources, you still reduce mortality overall based on several studies that we have. Yeah, it's kind of funny if you think about all the lengths that parents go to to like Make sure their kids, all their stuff is sterilized and not, and they're, they're getting like the softest organic cotton, like sleeper sack, like all these things that we do to try our kid be healthy. And then we'll hand them something that they're going to eat that's going to cause long-term damage to their body. <laughs> so Dr. Shaw, what are some common questions that people come in with their kids? What are just the most common questions you get, I guess? I mean, two of them we've already kind of touched on, which is like the protein and the dairy. I think by far, those are the two most common things that parents are worried about. And oftentimes those concerns will stem from visits with your pediatrician. Like, you know, my pediatrician is concerned about not having dairy in the diet and not getting enough protein. And we know from everything Brenda said that neither dairy nor animal flesh foods are required to meet our calcium and protein requirements. So those are probably two of the most common things. I think the other concern amongst more plant-based families is probably specific nutrient concerns, like the requirement for supplements and do they have to pay attention? I think on the one hand, we know that well-planned plant-based diets can absolutely meet the needs of growing children, but we also have to emphasize the words well-planned. So I think just eating a plant-based diet doesn't necessarily guarantee that your child is going to meet his or her nutrient requirements. So the key point is definitely well-planned and offering a variety of foods that we talked about with the fruits, vegetables, legumes, all those things can definitely go a long way towards it. And in the book, and we can certainly talk about it here too, there are some specific nutrients that you may need to supplement. I think the other thing that I'll say is that there is this assumption that if a plant-based diet requires supplementation of certain nutrients, then inherently there must be something wrong with it, right? So that if you're telling me I might need to take B12 or vitamin D, 
there's something deficient and therefore it must not be an optimal diet. And what I remind parents about all the time is whether we know it or not, our diets in the United States or in, in Canada are already heavily fortified, right? So cow's milk contains fortification with vitamin D and vitamin A. A lot of our grains are fortified with folic acid. Infant cereals are fortified with iron. So all of us to some degree are eating a diet that is fortified and having to potentially fortify your diet with certain key nutrients doesn't necessarily mean that it's suboptimal or that it's not a good way of eating. And we can certainly talk about the specific nutrients, but I would say a very diet, milk and meat are not required for healthy growth and development of children. And just paying attention to a few key nutrients should really do it. And then the last thing I think oftentimes, you know, we devote a whole section in the book to issues around the dinner table. So, you know, dealing with the challenges, whether you're omnivorous or plant-based from picky eaters to creating space and time for family meals and busy work lives. I think with the pandemic, I have seen that more and more families are cooking and eating together. And I hope that that trend does continue. So what are some of those key nutrients that people need? And are people deficient whenever they eat animal diets too? Yeah, and I'll let Brenda go into some of the more specifics, but absolutely, you know, as a pediatrician, I can say that the vast majority of my practice has been with omnivorous families and children, and I've seen vitamin D deficiency rickets, iron deficiency anemia, definitely a deficiency of fiber, you know, I I think on a daily basis, we're seeing kids with constipation. So I think regardless of the diet you consume, you have to be careful of key nutrients. And maybe Brenda, you want to talk about some of the specific ones with plant-based children. Yeah, so the only nutrient that you absolutely are not going to get enough of on a plant-based diet, if it's a well-planned, even plant-based diet, is possibly vitamin B12 if you're not using B12-fortified foods like B12-fortified non-dairy milks and big analogs and those kinds of things. And so that's the one nutrient that you would need to supplement. And you don't need to supplement during the first six months of life if the mother is getting enough B12 then the baby will be getting enough from her breast milk. Once the baby starts relying more on solids than breast milk for calories, then you really want to make sure that either the baby's getting enough fortified foods, even if the baby's getting enough fortified foods, the levels can be, you know, not always that consistent in fortified foods that it it, it would make sense to provide at you know, a multivitamin with B12 or a B12 supplement once or twice a week for a child, even if they're eating 45 foods. And then a vitamin D, but if your question is B12 related. Uh, It was about multivitamins, actually. Like, when do you start giving a multivitamin? Well, you can start giving them, I mean, depending on the baby's diet, I, I mean, certainly you can start giving a multivitamin to toddlers, I would say. But before the age of probably about three, you would just want to be using vitamin drops. And so generally, there are not quite as many different types of nutrients in the drops. You might get something with with, um, a small selection of nutrients. And so for young babies, that would be about it. But certainly for those that are, you know, three plus, a multivitamin, I don't think is a bad idea. And usually it's a chewable multivitamin because... Children, especially toddlers, can be finicky eaters, picky eaters. And and so you're getting a little boost of of several of the nutrients that could be an issue. Not just vitamin B12, but zinc and iron and iodine and vitamin D. 
So there, it just, it's a little bit of an insurance, really. Not that you shouldn't be really mostly focused on making sure that you're providing a wide variety of nutritious foods. That's number one. But I'm not opposed to a reasonable multivitamin myself. And the only thing I would add is for all infants that are being breastfed, regardless of, you know, the diet that they follow, vitamin D supplementation begins in the newborn period. So that's one vitamin that I would recommend supplementing right away. Yeah. And even for mom and dad, vitamin D supplements, right? Yeah. Yeah. So with infants, you start out with 400 IUs a day, you know, like Dr. Reishma said, <laughs> closely or shortly after birth. So, and you can, you would continue that for sure. And what about iron? And, and I, yeah, for vitamin D, by the time you're a year of age, you're it's 600 IUs and right up into adulthood until you're 70 and then it goes up to 800. So it's uh, pretty consistent throughout life what you need. And then iodine is a nutrient that is not on the radar of a lot of people. And it's a nutrient that should be because a lack of iodine is actually the number one cause of um, mental retardation. I was thinking of what's the proper word for mental retardation today, but that it actually can cause very, very severe cognitive impairment in children. And so it's normally we don't see cognitive impairment from iodine deficiency as much in the developed world. We see it more in the developing world. Generally, what we've done worldwide to protect human beings from iodine deficiency is we buy that salt. Salt being a very inexpensive product that's, you, you know, always thought to be used by pretty much everyone. Now, within the plant-based community, a lot of people are saying, you know, sort of SOS, no salt added diets. And also those that do use salt often like to choose more natural salts like sea salt or Himalayan pink salt or whatever the, the case may be. And in fact, these salts don't have a significant amount of iodine. And what, you know, what we need is, you know, for a small child, it's somewhere around the 90. Well, for a very small child, it's even more like 130, 110 during infancy, it's 150 for adults. And it goes down to about 90 for for toddlers, but it's still, it's a lot. It's almost as much as, as during adulthood. And so I would say we need to make sure there's a source and there are just a few sources. See, in a in an omnivorous diet, iodine will come from seafoods. Uh, it will come from, you know, eggs. It will come from milk. There's a fair bit of iodine in cow's milk. The reason, the main reason being is that we use iodine to disinfect the teats of the cows and and the equipment used for milking. So there ends up being a fair bit of iodine in the milk. It's mm. not like milk is some, you know, fantastic iodine source. It just happens to be there because of that. So in the omnivores, they have all of these different potential sources. In plant-based diets, the sources are more limited. And the main source, I mean, you get little bits from your fruits and vegetables and greens. And, you know, you get little bits depending on the, the iodine content of the soil. But the main source would be seaweed. And people don't, in our culture, don't tend to use seaweed like, for example, they do in the Japanese culture. And so sometimes you might give your child a little seaweed snack of nori. Uh, it's not super high in iodine, but it is a, a source. But otherwise, it's iodized salt. And in, you know, for babies, you're not adding any salt at all. 
So you really do need to think about, are you getting a source of iodine? Is there enough iodine in your breast milk? And if you are choosing a multivitamin mineral supplement for a toddler, does it include iodine? And if you're buying salt, if you really insist on buying, say, sea salt or some other fancy salt, uh, is it iodized? And if it's not, then where's your iodine coming from? And maybe you need an iodine drops or supplement, something like that. But it is a nutrient we do need to consider carefully. Okay, so you mentioned iodine, vitamin D, vitamin B12, and zinc. Can you over like can they over supplement? Can, will it damage your child if they're getting too much of those? Oh, absolutely! You can overdo a lot of nutrients. You can overdo iron. You can overdo zinc. You definitely can overdo vitamin B. They are act, actually these nutrients can be toxic, and that's why when you're looking at the RDAs or the recommended allowances, the recommended intakes for these. Foods, you'll also see something called the UL or upper limit. And the upper limit is the amount at which we know if you go higher than that, it will cause harm. And so there is an upper limit. And, and sometimes the difference between the recommended intake and the upper limit is not that great. So for example, with zinc, it's not that great. For vitamin D, it's not that great. So it means that you do have to be somewhat cautious of not overdoing now, vitamin B12, we, we haven't seen a lot of adverse effects uh, to higher doses of B12. Some people react with some, you know, acne or something on very high doses, but generally it's not thought to be a nutrient that is, uh, you know, a real problem in that regard. But certainly the nutrients that we store more uh, can, be an, can be an issue for sure. So we want to be careful about the amounts that we consume. So someone listening might be like, wow, this sounds really complicated. Like I got to give all these supplements and oh, if I give them too much, it's going to be toxic. How hard is it really? I, I don't know who wants to take that one, but I don't want people to get overwhelmed and be like, oh, screw this. It's too much. And I think the short answer is it's not really that hard, but you do have to pay attention. And I think the first step is just creating a diet that has a varied amount of all these wholesome foods that we've been talking about trying to make it a joyful experience, trying to make it something that's going to really be enjoyable for the family. So that's kind of the foundation. And I think that if you're just beginning and you're feeling really nervous, finding a multivitamin that contains some of these nutrients that we're talking about is a great first place to start. And most multivitamins are not going to contain levels that are super, super high. So generally, you know, and people often ask us for brands and stuff, and I think it can be variable in terms of what what kind of access you have. And then if you're a family that really wants to make sure that even your vitamins are totally plant-based and vegan, that's another consideration. But finding a vitamin that you feel is going to provide sort of an insurance policy to make sure that those things are there is a great place to start. If you are very concerned I think it can be really helpful to meet with a dietitian that's well-versed in plant-based diets and can give you some guidance and reassurance. But in the book, we really do try to cover a lot of these nutrients of concerns. And I would just remind people that these concerns are not unique to children being fed plant-based diets. I think we have to be concerned about these nutrients with varied diets. And as Brenda mentioned, plant-based diets have the added benefit of giving us all these wonderful things like fiber and phytonutrients and things like that. So it can be really easy to sort of focus on all the scary things, but keep in mind that this way of eating is so abundant and it provides so many healthful nutrients. So I think bottom line is eat a varied diet, 
if you want to find a good multivitamin to sort of cover your basis, that's really kind of all you have to do. Yeah, and Sonia, you should know that you don't really have to be concerned about excesses of any of those nutrients if you're doing a multivitamin because they usually have about, you know, somewhere 50, never more than 100% of the RDA of any of the nutrients. The only time it becomes a real issue is if you're doing single nutrient supplements. And the only single nutrient supplements you may decide to use are B12 and vitamin B. And you just, it, B12 isn't much of an issue if you do larger amounts because you only absorb maybe 1% of what you're taking. And vitamin D, uh, generally, if you buy drops for small children, it's very, very easy to follow. Uh, you're taking so many drops and that's it. And it's very specific. So overdoing them is really not much of an issue. Okay. And then something that I found really interesting was that younger toddlers and babies need higher percentages of fat in their diet. So as a baby goes off of breast milk, say people stop breastfeeding or say, as you mentioned, the percentage of calories from breast milk starts going down because the baby is starting to eat more solid foods. If a baby's eating a like a healthy plant-based diet, are they going to be getting enough fat or do you have to really be paying attention to how much fat they're getting? Well, I would say that, that you just need to, you don't have to pay super close attention, but you definitely do not want to be doing a low fat vegan diet. A low fat vegan diet is a diet that is appropriate for someone with severe heart disease who's trying to reverse the disease. The number one goal in a person with disease is disease reversal, disease, you know, to protect them from the consequences of the disease. The number one goal for infants and young children is adequate growth and development. They need fat. They need fat for brain growth. They need fat for, you know, they're making cells constantly in the outer, you know, membrane of the cell is fat. It's got to be part of the diet. And so, the recommended intake, well, for little babies, it's about 50% of calories. It goes down to 40%, 30 to 40% for toddlers. And then, you know, some 20 to 35% or so as children get older. But generally, you're not wanting to eliminate high-fat foods for children. And so you want to really focus on things like um you know, for babies and toddlers, nut and seed butters and creams and using nuts and seeds in dressings and, and in sauces and all of those things. And as they get older and they can eat, you know, solid nuts and seeds, those are great things. Avocado is a wonderful addition to the diet of a baby or, or a child. So all of these uh, higher fat foods, uh, soy foods, uh, tofu are is a little higher fat food and these are very appropriate foods. Some people will say, well, what about oils? And and often in the whole food plant-based world, oils are thought of as a, as the devil, you know, that people shouldn't be using them at all. And and I don't use a lot of oils myself. I tend to try to make dressings, or I do make dressings with nuts and seeds instead of oils, for example. However, in the diet of a small child, and you've got a sort of a high fiber plant-based diet, having a little bit of oil in the food may not be such a bad thing. And so it, it can help to provide because there's nothing with more calories in a smaller volume than oil. And so for a child that's a really small eater and you need to infuse calories into their, you know, whatever food they're eating, 
adding a little bit of a high quality, well-chosen oil could be a way of, of doing that. So, and, and, you know, Reshma, you can speak to this a little bit more, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly using whole food sources of fat is a great addition to the diet of a child. And I think Every family is going to have their own personal way of cooking in terms of cultural backgrounds and preferences and things like that. And we do use a bit of oil in our cooking if I'm roasting a tray of vegetables and things like that. And I think for a lot of families, it just depends on what your unique situation is. If you've got older people that are reversing disease, it may make a lot of sense to kind of try and limit added oils in the diet. But for a young family that's, you know, healthy and if you're making a lot of changes in your diet, like you're already trying to do more plant-based foods and cut back on processed meats and cut back on dairy and cut back on I think that anytime you make it more difficult or more challenging to make this way of eating enjoyable and accessible, it's a roadblock. So I tend not to worry too much about a little bit of olive oil here and there in the cooking, especially if it's going to enhance the flavor. But you know, certainly trying not to eat too many fried foods or things like that would be would be good even for young kids. Yeah, and a little bit of fat helps you absorb some of the nutrients and high-fiber foods, right? Absolutely. So we've mostly talked about babies and younger children, mostly because that's where I'm selfishly at in my life. And your book, you you guys definitely talk about teenagers. You talk about the teenage athletes. So I want people to pick up your book. I have one last question, and it's about baby-led weaning and... I'm very nervous about like the choking aspect of letting a kid eat like chunks of, of food. Dr. Shaw, can you talk about that a little bit? Should I be worried? Yeah, uh, you shouldn't be worried. I think baby led weaning is actually a, it's a relatively new concept. My kids are both teenagers, almost young adults. So it was not the trend when I was raising them. I think that baby led weaning can... Brenda and I have actually, we were just talking about this recently. I think it can be a really great way to sort of introduce foods to kids. It has a lot, the main advantages um, that people feel that baby led weaning offers over a more traditional feeding approach like spoon feeding pureed foods is a couple of things. One is that there's some thought that infants who use are fed a baby led weaning approach can self-regulate a bit more so that they can, you know, stop eating when they're satisfied. And it sort of lends itself to this idea of intuitive eating, even at a very young age. So that's one advantage. It can also sort of develop their fine and gross motor skills because they're having to sort of pick up the foods. Some parents find that it actually creates less work in terms of having to you know, sit there and spoon feed the child. So there are many potential advantages. The main disadvantages, the key one is the, the risk of choking. And there have actually been a lot of studies looking at the risk of choking with baby led weaning. And the truth is we don't have enough robust data, but I think if you're using an approach to baby led weaning, it's actually there's a, an approach called BLISS, which is it's baby led weaning with certain supports so that you don't, you avert the risk of choking. So you want to make sure that the baby is actually ready to be feeding so that they can sit upright a little bit. Obviously you never want to leave the baby unsupervised when they're eating and you want to sort of decrease the, or eliminate the exposure to foods that have a high risk for choking. So obviously hard raw vegetables would not be appropriate for a baby led weaning approach. Even things like nuts, full nuts would not be appropriate. And some people wouldn't even consider this, but things that form like a crumb in the mouth or can stick to the roof of the mouth. So mm-hmm. if you're offering peanut butter or things like that, you don't want to give peanut butter that they can just sort of put a big glob in their mouth because they could choke on that. So I think that where Brenda and I probably fall is 
you have to look at your specific situation. If you have the time and the patience and the supervision, baby led weaning can absolutely be a wonderful way to feed babies. I think for some of those foods like the infant cereals, which we talked about are a really great source of iron, can be a little more challenging to offer in a baby led weaning format because it would require the baby to sort of use the spoon. Now, there are lots of recipes that use infant cereals to sort of make biscuits and things like that where a child could, you know, use a baby led weaning approach. The other final thing I'll say about baby led weaning is for some families, it's not a really reasonable option because it can have a lot of food wastage. So if you imagine, you know, you kind of give the baby the food and they sort of pick up the thing and they may not eat part of it. So it can lead to a lot of food wastage. And for families where that might have food insecurity or they really can't afford to be wasting food, that's another consideration. And it can be, you know, it doesn't really bother me too much, but it can be a bit messier than just spoon feeding. So I think an approach where you offer perhaps both things and seeing where your child is. Some kids are really vigorous eaters and they really just gravitate towards that approach where they can self-feed. But the most important thing, I think, whether you're using a baby led weaning approach or more traditional feeding with you know pureed foods is to be responsive to the child. Even if you're doing pureed foods, no need to be worried. Be careful of the choking risks, but even babies that are fed, you know, pureed foods and traditional foods, there's a risk of choking. So adequate supervision, making sure the child's developmentally appropriate to start feeds and, you know, not feeding them foods that have a high risk for choking. Yeah, I've been trying to give my son like different textures. Like I don't fully puree the foods. They'll be like small, like soft chunks of things. And I offer like a pile if he wants to grab some and put it in his mouth, but he tends to want me to give it to him in a spoon. But I think the texture thing might be important so that he can learn like what different foods feel like, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think offering a variety of foods in a variety of formats is key to getting them to accept new flavors. So, you know, whether you have like pureed bananas or you might do like, you know, a chunk of banana that he can grab and kind of eat, it's they are slightly different textures. With The only caveat would be, actually, one of the studies I looked at, the greatest risk of choking, the food that was the greatest risk of choking was actually apple slices. Hmm. So people think like, oh, apples are a great food to give baby, but you don't want to give them big chunks of raw apple because it's just like a raw vegetable. So I think textures are great. And if you're going to be offering vegetables or fruits, just steaming them or cooking them so that they don't pose a choking risk. Yes. Or even grating an apple is a way of of reducing that risk. Well, thank Mm -hmm. you so much, you two. We learned so much today and your book has Uh, way more information than what we talked about. So people should definitely pick up the book. If people want to get in touch with either one of you, Brenda, where's the best place to find you? Well, we have a website that's nourishthebook.com. And then I have my personal website, brendadavisrd.com. And our book is called Nourish, and it will be out November 17th. And we have an amazing pre-order kind of giveaway where one lucky person that pre-orders the book will be winning a brand new Vitamix. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah. And everybody that pre-orders the book, we, we created like a free ebook with bonus recipes that are not in the book and some, you know, just tips and resources. And then Brenda and I actually have been doing, we're trying to do weekly Instagram lives, just talking about a variety of these topics. And they're hosted on my page, my Instagram, which is just Rachel Michelle. Awesome. And is that the best place to get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can get Instagram is where I am most active. So it's just my name, Rashma Shah. And then I also have a personal website, rashmashahmd.com. 
but yeah, those are all the places you can find us. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed that awesome episode. Please don't forget to rate and subscribe to the show if you're enjoying this podcast and to share the show with your friends. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it whenever you do that because it helps other people like you find the show. And that is my mission to help people be better every day to help people find their healthiest, happiest body and mind. Thank you to those of you who are supporting the show financially on Patreon. I couldn't do it without you. Also your donations on PayPal. Those are so, so important. And again, thank you so, so much. That's it for today. I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. See ya.